0: good title, uh, I, I credit my co-leader, Abby, with that. Practical Steps to a Social Justice Integration in the English Classroom, and uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, we're going to start, um, did anybody go to the, uh, the Colossian Forum session right before this one? We're gonna, you may notice there are things, and Abby will actually specifically refer to that later on. Um, you may notice that we're going to use some pieces of that. And this is, the first of all, we're going to start uh, with a shared uh, a shared prayer. And I'm going to ask that you uh, read it in unison. Uh, you have done it before you go to church. Um, it's the prayer of St. Francis which you probably know but it is so beautiful and, and meaningful and appropriate for this Sunday. So let's read it together. Lord, Lord make me an instrument in your of ears. your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. We'll start by briefly introducing ourselves. Uh, I'll add you first.
1: Abby Swart, I teach here at Grand Rapids Christian. Um, the classes I teach right now are literature and social justice, as well as media studies, which is our 10th grade class. Lit and justice is 11th and 12th mixed. Um, I worked here six years and I taught in charter schools for a few years before this high school and middle school. Um, I went to Calvin University and I also am the co editor with this guy of uh, the Christian. Educator's Journal, Ooh. Aka Ooh. Ooh, Love for okay, okay. That's good, that's good. We're not ever sure if people actually read it. Like, I, you know, no shame if you take it out of your mailbox and put it in the recycle bin.
0: I used to. <laughs> no, yeah, it's environmental shame for not well, it's I, recycling. Recycle bin! Well, okay, okay. But right. okay. all the paper and in ink. Anyway, yeah. um, my name is Steve it This is, um... My something you're teaching, but my 16th or 17th year grant was scripted. I didn't do the math this way. Uh, Abby and I taught we're, were the the two teachers for social justice literature three years ago, I think, when we actually planned this before COVID threw off uh, all of everyone's plans. I also teach uh, media studies, which she also teaches. I also teach literary dramas, which is our introduction to literature class for freshmen, and I also teach an American lit class, which is not a chronological American lit class, but one that's taught thematically around what we call Literature of the American Dream. So we talk about what is the mythos, not the myth, but like the, the story, the shared story that we tell about the American Dream, and then we critique it using literature. Um, and so that will inform how I um, continue to teach using social justice pedagogy and content in, the, in my classes, even though I don't currently teach the same class. That kind of was the genesis of this presentation. Um, so we wanted to start with uh, what to teach. Well, that's the who we are, sorry, that's up. Uh, we want to start with what to teach. Um, I have uh, loved this conference today, um, starting with the opening liturgy, and then with our keynote. With two of the three sessions I've gone to, they've all talked about justice in some way or fashion. And um, that that does my heart a lot of good. Uh, because it seems to us, and this is probably the first main point, that justice is part of our calling scriptures. Um, but in the current political environment, um, teaching about justice needs to be done um, especially, and, and you've probably experienced this, right? Uh, the word justice itself has now become suspect to some of our constituents. This is something that showed up in my social media feed, um, and I'm, I'm really sad that this actually showed up in a social media feed as opposed to me having made it as satire, um, but this is real this actually showed up and someone was trying to create yeah oh yeah and i love this multiculturalism as opposed to cross culturalism um they they thought it was cute or something um but i have to say it when i saw this my heart just sank because um the 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 words social injustice describe what it is it is an attempt to have justice in a society and to To try to create a dichotomy between social justice and biblical justice seems to me, and seems to us, Um, all sorts of words come to mind. But I'll just say bad, because um, it it just feels wrong. right? Um, So when we teach social justice literature, the first thing we do is teach about justice. we figured, uh, in a Reformed context, uh, who better to turn to than Nicholas Walters, who was one of the finest spokespeople for the Reformed tradition. And so, um, yes, yeah, snapping for Nicholas Walters, is always appropriate. Um, we took the first interlude from Walters' book, Until Justice and Peace and Grace, which is an absolutely beautiful expression of what Shalom means. And we said, um, we, we took this quote, actually we give a reading, and. If you scan the QR code later, you'll get a handout with some resources. The first resource is actually our abridgment of that interlude. We, we made it mostly fit on, on two sides of one piece of paper. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a kind of a challenging read for the 11th and 12th graders, but it's so essential for them to understand the biblical conception of Shalom. And so this quote, uh, which is from Walter Store, from that movie. We shall see that shalom is intertwined with justice. In shalom, each person enjoys justice, enjoys his or her rights. There is no shalom without justice. So instead of this, which we consider to be a false dichotomy, we ask students to think of it this way: Right, justice is a piece of shalom. It's the piece that deals with our rights between people. Right, social justice, justice between other humans. Um, of course, if you read the whole thing, and, that, and this is a, a quick summary of a beautiful, poetic, powerful passage, Shalom goes beyond justice in these ways. It also includes relation with God and relation with nature. Right? It's um, that wonderful, um, and if you've read um, H. Richard Bieber's Responsibility Ethics, uh, your relationship with God, your relationship with others, and your relationship with creation. Uh, and then, most beautifully, it incorporates the light in all of it's it's not just we're not doing each other harm it's that we're bringing joy and thrive to one another and what we teach first is that that is the conception of justice that we are talking about we think this is really important for a number of reasons one is if you were at the Colossians Forum or if you listened to the keynote today this is about love Right? This is about the greater shared commitments that we have as members of the body of Christ. It's not something that uh, leads left or means right. It's something which is central to God's plan for the entire universe. Uh, that is the where we need to start. So what we teach first is God's vision for the world. A um, little follow-up on that. Um, it's not only God's vision for the world, it's our job. And this is from that same reading from Walter Storch. Shalom is both God's cause in the world and our human calling. Even though the full incursion of shalom into our history will be a divine gift and not merely human achievement, even though its episodic incursion into our lives now also has a dimension of a divine gift, nonetheless, it is shalom that we are to work and struggle for. And so why do we teach this class? To better understand God's vision, but also to better understand our role interesting to me that with all the the talk of justice as our calling as teachers today, um, I haven't always heard people talk about explicitly sharing it with students. Um, But it needs to be the first thing we teach in all of our classes. The other class that I teach mostly is in psychology. I I find all sorts of ways to weave our role as justice seekers into that class as well. Oh, just a brief tangent. The description has our curriculum standards, but we also have, as our other understanding of our outcomes, a portrait of a graduate. And one of those 10 points is justice secrets. Um, right. So not only are we, we telling students this is our job, but I think once we have had this, this discussion at the beginning of the class, it's clear to our administrators, it's clear to our parents, it's clear to our colleagues, it's clear to our whole community why this is a central concern. So that's kind of the philosophical, what we teach. But it's also the first point. Um, what then, um, how do you determine content for a course that's going to be, especially in, in the literature arts, the language arts, going to be about justice? Um, we have all sorts of curricular standards we need to deal with. Um, and if you're in a school like ours, there's an expectation that students will study great works of literature, as well as recent works. How do you balance that? Well. Um, When you're talking about works, that I I actually played with the word canon, and Abby suggested, no, that's the right word. Um, It's easy actually to come up with works that are specifically about justice, even from the traditional canon. And I and I made a list of ones that I have used in various classes: Um, Steinbeck's *The Grapes of Wrath*, *Of Mice and Men*, Richard Wright's *Black Boy*, Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, Ellison's, Invisible Man, Ziriniel Hurston's The Eyes Are Watching God, the Chape's Things Fall Apart. I actually said to Abby that that was like a response to the canon, but I'm 20 years older than Abby. She told me it's now in the canon. So um, I, I will accept that um, because I am old. Um, in our uh, freshman literature studies class, we use House on Magnuson, um Raising in the Sun uh, by Hainsbury. Um, we started and continue to use simply plastic bell jar in our social literacy justice class. It's, it's a challenge, um, and, and it's, um, it's a difficult work to teach. But those are works that are canonical, that give us opportunities to talk about justice. Can you think of others that you use in your classes that would fit kind of classic works that give us opportunities to talk about justice? i have that, our current ghost voice. Oh, ghost voice, yes. Yeah. Here. Well, and I would I would put that, um, yeah, I would, I would kind of put that here. Um, I'll, I'll go through all three, and then you can give me examples of you're to put them. How's that? Um, works that highlight voices outside of the canon, and I'm going to say one of the things that we've done a little bit more credit of description lately that I'm pleased with is uh, young adult fiction and graphic novels have done a really good job highlighting voices outside of the canon. Some examples that I know that we use here Persepolis, um, uh, Boxers and Saints, um, those have been used in some of our classes. Um, those are both graphic novels. Some of the young adult um, lit we re- have used, well, Abby uses in her young adult class Eleanor and Park. Um, Esperanza Rising, I haven't used here, I've used elsewhere. Um, so, uh, for adult works like America Not by Adichie, right? sorry. I- I lost my Uh ribbon.
1: All your credibility's gone.
0: You better take over now. (laughs) Um, The other thing that we've done, and we've done this for a little bit longer, um, even before we started replacing major texts, is thinking about some of those major works and thinking about what can we pair with them, that question them. How many of you still use to 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 kill a mockingbird somewhere in your group? And I love the novel, right? I, I want to be at this range. Right? anyone else feel that way, right? but I'm also troubled by the novel. Right? There are these voices that are lacking. Um, I, what I really want is that story told from Helen Robinson's point. Right? How do we get there? How do we help students think about literature that way? Um, and if any of you is, is ready to write. Them, a great novel, there's there's a premise We're good. Um, so what we've often done is for instance when we teach that we use Richard Wright's um, some sections of Richard Wright's uh, The Ethics of Living Through Pro so that students not only see you know the, the white attitudes, but understand what it's like to be So those are three ways that that um, we can suggest using or selecting literature for use in a class focused on social justice like And and now um, Gross boys, like I said, I think that kind of fits in this category, right? Um, a newer work that will frame frame discussions from different perspectives. Other works that you've had success with? Go ahead. I teach came here uh, a lot about we live in a world that is deeply unjust. Excellent. And in fact, I, I have just um, on my my top list this part I just basically wrote Shakespeare there's so many great works. Okay, maybe not Romeo and Juliet. Um, but so many other Shakespearean works do talk about suggest, future, okay? which is the one we be ironically close off. Others?
1: Diary of Frank.
0: Yes, Diary Van Frank. Not sure. That may actually be here now too, right? Um, the 57 plus. Ooh, good. Others? Yeah. Um, another, another clearly. Um, I'm gonna step on that. And uh, yeah. Another one that's clearly in the canon, written by a white person about white people, but shows issues of injustice really powerfully, and always frighteningly applicable to our current society. Yeah. Maybe more for younger grades, but Gary Schmidt is right Yeah. I thought of on that one on this list too. Um, Every one of Gary the Smith's books makes me <laughs> <lie>. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: Two others that I use in literature, or in um, young adult literature, are The Curious Case of the Dog in the Nighttime* or Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime*. Um, the main character has some sort of autism or is on that spectrum. Um, and then I also use Jacqueline Woodson's Brown Girl Dreaming. Um, both, yeah, middle, middle grades, or I suppose Curious Incident is Borderline Adult, but um, yep.
0: I thought, in, in that vein, didn't you used to use the Hate You Give too?
1: Yeah, that's in the club still,
0: yeah. Yep, the Hate You Give. Um, so, I mean, there's there's lots out there, and and where how you use these, I think, depends partly on the other demands of your curriculum, right? Like in a in an AP class, you might have to use books that are are from the canon. Well, then you probably have to choose here or here. Um, although there are contemporary writers. Right, that, that you could probably fit in, who clearly of what's the line significant literary merit. Okay. And then once you're, um, w- once you've selected uh, books, um, here are a list, and this these come from a work by Randy Bomer and his wife. Uh, do any of you teach in a writing reading and writing workshop? Um, okay, that's more more middle and and out. Um the Boomers are part of the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project. They have a wonderful book that's also on the resources called um, Reading and Writing for a Better World. Um, it's about social activism in the neighbor's classroom. Um, and any of these topics is a theme that you can show. Like You'll, you'll find at least one of these themes in all, every book you teach, right? Groups, um, how do groups interact? What are the dynamics between those groups? Do some groups have more power than others? Um, yeah, uh, power. Right. Do individuals have power? Do groups have power? Fairness and justice, especially if you teach middle school, that's an easy one. Right? Middle school <laughs> students are so attuned to what's fair and not fair. Right? Um, voices in silence is a more subtle one, I think. Um, whose voices do we hear? Whose voices do we not hear? Again, um, one of the ways that I try to question Tequila to um, whose voices are we not hearing? Whose voices are silenced? Um, any book with multiple perspectives, I love it when authors uh, alternate chapters, right? So that you hear multiple perspectives of the same event or the same incident, um, which allows you to think, wow, how do different people's backgrounds need them to think differently? Um, representation, how are different ethnic, gender, racial, um, class groups represented? Obviously, in some ways, these are the big three. I don't need to talk about them. Um, language is always fascinating to me. Um, can't teach, for instance, uh, we used the autobiography of Fred Douglass in my American Lit class. Um, talk about powerful work of literature. Um, the way he talks about language and the way it's used to control others is so powerful. Um, violence, and violence doesn't have to be interpersonal violence. Um, when Abby and I first taught social justice literature, our first unit was environmental justice. And, and there are ways in which assaults on the environment are both violent against God's creation, but also against groups of people who rely on different places in God's creation. Right. So um, allowing allowing part of God's world to become a wasteland is both a violent degradation of God's creation, but also of the individuals who live in that region require it. to preserve survival. Um, and and this one, which is always a little dangerous, maybe in America because we're so strongly individualistic, is. Um, do characters demonstrate a stronger individualist or collectivist and how can that um, relate to teaching So that's the what, and I will let Abby uh, focus on the how.
1: Before I go there, why don't you turn to the person next to you? Make sure that you know their name, where they teach, if you don't know them, um, and just mention one thing that stuck out to you so far. Something that you think you might use. Coming up, an idea that came to you. Um, because most of you probably don't have a class at your school called Literature and Social Justice. Um, so if you don't have room in your curriculum, or if you, know, you just changed curriculum last year and you don't want to do anything new, um, here are some things that you could kind of bring in to have a successful uh, justice-focused classroom. Um, so I'll begin with ways that you should begin. Um, the place to start, as you already noted, and as you know intuitively, um, is to start with faith. Um, to read scripture together, there are multitude of passages in scripture um, that urge us toward justice. Uh, and so I often will have students kind of paraphrase those because many of them will appear in, you know, Amos or Jeremiah or uh, these books that don't feel particularly relevant to our students. Um, so asking them to kind of paraphrase, to put it in their own language, um, and to perhaps to think of, ways that we might see, oh, I don't know, Pharisees in our own culture, um, or that sort of thing. Um, and then what, what you're really working toward here is to remind students that as people at a Christian school, we do have one thing in common. No matter how differently we may see things politically or whatever, um, what you can always come back to is that we are called to be people of justice, and so that is our goal. We might not agree about how to bring justice. We might not even agree what the problem is sometimes. And that's okay, right? We are called in Colossians, or we are told in Colossians 1.17 um, that Christ is before all things. and In him, all things hold together. This is the motto of the Colossians Forum, which Steve mentioned earlier. Um, they do a lot of work with how can Christians disagree, Christianly, Right? There is really not a lot of hope that we're ever going to all agree here on Earth. And that's okay, right? That's actually our strength as a people, is to show the rest of the world, hey, look at this diverse group of people who do still get along. Um, and so when you're teaching this sort of material where things can get really personal, um, that is the thing that you can always come back to. Uh, The other thing I think that you should really focus on and start with is making sure you have a community in your classroom. You all know that if kids don't know each other or don't know you, um, things aren't going to go well. No one's willing to talk about issues of identity or justice with a stranger. Um, So just as I asked you to make sure you know the name of the person next to you before you talked to them, um, kind of trying to build some of that community into your own classroom, Uh, So I will often start for the first maybe two or three weeks of school. Um, I'll print off four or five discussion questions per day, pass those out to little groups of students. They sit at tables in my room Um, specifically. I like them in tables rather than rows so that they can look at each other and discuss. Um, And just getting them to talk about silly things like what's the best meal you ever had or um, some of those classic goofy ones like is water wet or is a hot dog sandwich. Uh, They love to debate that, even in high school. My 12th graders love that. Um, But you can also then always sneak in some more um, meditative questions there, like, what is the kindest thing someone has ever done for you? Um, And so that really gets them to kind of share, to build a little community. Um, Also make sure that students know each other's names. Uh, That is maybe not such an issue in middle school where you have smaller classes, Um, but I have I have noticed that there are kids at the end of a semester in a high school English class that can't even tell me the name of everyone in the room. Right, you've been there for a whole year or maybe a whole semester, and they'll have to share a document with somebody and they'll say, oh, what's your name? Come on guys, right? So making that an expectation. Um, I do some activities with names at the beginning, playing around, thinking about the meanings of our names. Um, And then I also give a quiz. I make them all stand in a circle after a few days Uh, with a piece of scratch paper and I point to a person and say write down their name. Write down their name. And then we grade it. Um, It's obviously not counting toward their score but um, just kind of making that part of the class that you at least know who these people are. Um, And then another thing to think about when you're building community or trying to is your seating charts. So we often use seating charts as a way to manage behavior which is necessary. There are kids who shouldn't sit next to each other. Um, But these can also be ways to form relationships. Um, So I like to mix up whether I do a random seating chart, uh, which has its benefits. Sometimes the alphabet does really great things for you, and students get to know each other that way. Uh, Sometimes just drawing popsicle sticks out of a jar and saying, all right, you've got that number, go find that seat. It does interesting things. It creates interesting groupings that you might have avoided because you didn't want those students to sit next to each other, but, you know, maybe they will be fine. Um, and then also you can orchestrate different versions. So sometimes I will say, oh, we have a particular unit coming up where we're talking a lot about gender and gender roles and what that means in society. So I'm going to make sure that every table has a mix of genders. Or maybe I want a day where there's just a single gender. Um, so thinking about what that looks like, even mixing up if you're going to discuss race or something like that, um, thinking about if you have diversity in your classroom, how can I make sure that students feel safe and feel like they're not alone in a seating chart, that they have someone who maybe looks like them, um, but also making sure that they can share their story with people who aren't like them. Um, And then I also always make sure specifically in literature and social justice where we do talk a lot about identity and things that get political Um, but setting norms with your students we do this as adults a lot I always joke that like norms are the adult version of rules nobody likes rules so we call them norms Um, but just getting students to start thinking about how do we want discussion to go right they all know what a good discussion feels like I ask them to start by thinking about um, A serious discussion that they've had that went really well and then think about why Uh, they always come up with the same things that we were honest that we listened to each other that we didn't interrupt that we came in with a good attitude right Um, so making sure that you are letting students produce these things it's not you setting rules Um, and they should be different for every class period because you might have different groups of students there might be a group that thinks it's okay Um, To raise your hand while somebody else is talking before you've heard their whole thought and there might be a group that wants everyone to wait Until an idea is finished so that everyone can truly listen before they raise other hands Um, So making sure those are different Talking about what regular discussion looks like as well as what disagreement might look like so that ahead of time You have these expectations set of if something were to go wrong, right if things were to get out of hand All you have to do as a teacher is pull back up the slide, wherever your thing that you posted to the wall, whatever your norms are, wherever they are, and say, oh, hey, that's not what we all agreed on at the beginning, right? Um, I do always add two norms. um, And number one is that you have to assume the best of everybody in the room. You have to assume that we are all here to learn, that we are going to make mistakes, and that is okay. So you have to know that nobody's here trying to be offensive. Um, I think that's maybe a little different sometimes than in the adult world where there are people who just want to push your buttons. Uh, But these are students, you know, even if they're 18, they don't always necessarily know. Sometimes it is just ignorance. Um, And then I always remind them that the teacher is not always right. Uh, When we're talking about justice, things do become sometimes matters of opinion or it might feel partisan or political. Um, And I let them know that as a human, I obviously have biases and those are gonna come out right as hard as I try to show both sides um, you have to know that I'm not up here the voice of God you know, I'm not gonna give you a test on my opinions um, in other classes you know in math or in history or in science like what the teacher says is right but when you're having these kind of discussions that's not always true um, one way that I set up students for Um, coming into contact with some new ideas, some new perspectives, um, is I use journals um, that are never forced to share. So I just give students time to write in them, usually on a prompt or a certain question. um, And I let them know there's no right or wrong answer. This is not graded. um, It's just their space um, to kind of process something new. Uh, We all know about, you know, giving wait time when you ask a question. If you ask something really serious like, tell me about a time where you saw racial injustice happening, they're gonna need more than 30 seconds wait time, right? So giving them a little space, um, a little bit of time, maybe three, four minutes to process something, to write something down, they're gonna be much more likely to share, to be willing to put themselves out there because they had a moment to think. Um, And I usually do these online through a Google Doc as well that I have access to. Um, which can be useful if there's ever a student that I'm either concerned about or I'm having trouble figuring out kind of what their perspective or background is, If they're kind of saying off-the-wall things. I can always go into their journal to see if there's anything more illuminating. I let them know that. Nobody will ever read it except me. Um, So I have a few suggestions here now about how to hold good discussion um, because Again, because these are sometimes issues of identity or opinion, it's it's not so much you up here talking and teaching, um, but social justice education really relies on hearing from other people in the room. Um, So I have some suggestions on how to do that well. First, I think you have to think about your group size. There are different um, pros and cons to each size of group for discussion, Um, so I have some examples here. Um, Whole class, I think, is definitely the most energetic. Um, It's best, I think, for low-risk things when you, you know, don't think anyone might say something crazy or off the wall. Um, So I will tell you in a moment about a really good whole class debate protocol that I use. Um, So push pause on that for a second. Small group, I find, is best for um, any sort of conversation you're going to have that might become personal or that you really want to go deep. Um, so, they do these in four or five groups of four or five, hopefully, with people that they know or sit near, so that they kind of have that community built in. Um, I use this most often for discussion of texts. So, whether we read a chapter of a novel um, or we read an article, um, this is, I think, the best way to get some of those um, new perspectives out there for students, right? They might hear something from someone that they hadn't considered before Um, I also really like just the fact that I can kind of wander around and just peep in and listen hear what's going on here um, and that sort of thing and then I think there is a place for um, individual response it's not necessarily a discussion at that point um, so I thought a lot about how to get those individual ideas out uh, sometimes with anonymity which makes students I think feel really safe and willing to put their ideas out there. Um, It's a little bit of a risk as a teacher. Um, You don't necessarily know what you're going to get, but you can always fall back on, you know, this is anonymous, we don't know who this was, it's okay. Everyone is welcome to their perspective. Um, So this is definitely um, uh, my example, or one one thing I do here is I give students um, the privilege checklist. I don't know if you know um, Peggy McIntosh's privilege backpack she has this whole list of uh, white privilege, specifically. Um, whole list of things that um, privileges that you might have, and so you're supposed to check off the ones that are true for you. It tends to end up that if you are white, you check almost all of them. And if you're not, you check very few. Um, so, for example, she has things on there like when I ask to talk to the manager at a store, the person tends to be the same race as me. Or um, Band aids and makeup match the color of my skin, or uh, I am never asked to speak on behalf of my racial group. So nobody ever asks me, "Well, Abby, what do white people think about that?" Right? That just doesn't happen. Um, so I give students this after we've done a unit about race, um, and we've read "I'm Still Here" by Austin Channing Brown. Uh, great book, yes. It's on the list. Good stuff. Um, and so I, we talk about privilege, we talk about that being a loaded, scary word, right? Nobody likes to be accused of having privilege. Um, and we talk about the, the ideas of blame and responsibility, right? That we're not blaming anyone for having privilege. You don't get to choose whether you have it. Um, but once you know it's there, it's yours to use and to spend and to take responsibility for. Uh, so I have them complete the activity. And then I sent them to a Google form that is anonymous. It's not collecting email addresses or names or anything. And I just ask them to react right? in a couple sentences. Was there a new idea for you here? Um, how does this make you feel? What was the most impactful list item to you? Uh, they fill that out. And then I put it up on the screen. And I let them read. And it's usually five minutes of dead silence. I do not have to convince anyone to pay attention or listen. They want to know what other people think, right? Um, And so I'll put all the answers up and just scroll through. And there's no names attached, but they get this really nice sampling um, of what their classmates are thinking with very little fear factor there for them. Um, I call this the magic question in discussion when you are talking about issues of politics or identity what other perspectives have you heard so as teachers we know it is not our job to give our own opinion um, but because we're up here at front it seems like we have the right answer whatever we say goes um, and so our our job is to create that sort of open space right to make sure that all sides of an issue are being addressed um, and the way to do that is just to ask students what else they know. So you might be getting only one perspective in a discussion. And that's fine, let that go for a few minutes. Um, but all you have to do is ask them what else they know. Because they've heard the other side, right? Especially high school students. They are online, they are sitting at the dinner table, they know what else is out there. Um, so asking this question, I think, really opens up a safe space for anybody to. Without an opinion right I've heard that some people think this thing they might secretly think that and that's fine it doesn't really matter right what we're looking for is the diversity of ideas uh, I think it especially creates a safe space for more conservative voices which when you're talking about justice can automatically feel shut down right I know that the students that struggle the most in my lit and justice class are the students with a little more conservative values Um, and so we we need to open that space for them as well otherwise it's not a conversation right Um, students love to just tell you that they know the answer oh I've heard you know I saw this on the news the other day they will happily bring that up they sound smart Um, and then as a teacher if perhaps you're walking around to small group discussion beforehand don't be afraid to plant an answer right to say oh I hear you all saying kind of the same thing have you thought about this other perspective just drop it and leave right they'll get to it they'll discuss that they might be willing then to share later um, or if you hear someone put forth sort of a, a minority opinion just ask them oh great point we make sure to say that in whole group discussion in a moment here are um, so I'm going to talk now about the debate so this is my whole group strategy um, I have successfully debated all of these topics in Uh, literature and social justice. So just read those a second. I think a lot of teachers might look at this list and say, oh my god, I would never talk about those things, right? That is pushing all the wrong buttons, I'm going to get a parent email the moment I say one of those phrases. Um, So my method for this is a debate. in which I always assign positions, right? You are basically asking the magic question, what other perspectives have you heard, Um, but doing it in a formal situation. Um, So I will put forth the question, I will assign teams or groups in the classroom, often just by numbering off so that I'm not tempted to put a particular kid on a particular side. Um, I will make sure to give them prep time, with computer access. Because some of them might not know what affirmative action is, right? Uh, Maybe we haven't discussed it, maybe it just came up in a reading. Um, So giving them time with their team to be able to look online, to find sources. um, Encouraging them to try to predict what the other side is gonna say, right? We're teaching good argumentation and rhetoric here too, thinking about your counterarguments. And then I ask for an opening statement from each side. Um, to begin like pick pick and elect someone from your side to say here are you know our three main points why we think our side is correct Um, Hear both of those and then I'll go back and forth and I take raised hands because a debate can otherwise get a little out of hand it can get yelling it can get loud it can get um, so that people can't even hear each other Um, so I take raised hands and that allows me to have a little bit of fairness factor of making sure we hear both sides Um, sometimes you know they'll just talk without me calling on them and it's okay it flows naturally once you've done it a few times Um, but I find that to be a really good way just to make sure that students are seeing all perspectives this really protects you from any sort of issue you might have with an administrator or a parent it's just to say yeah we talked about that but both sides were aired right students might have come away with one opinion or the other but they were not um, Told what to think right? uh, and my other favorite way to get new perspectives in the room is to teach critical lenses um, so this is really useful in English because obviously we're reading literature and there are so many different ways to read the bell jar let's say uh, so teaching critical lenses really allows students to try out a new perspective Right? You're, again, you're asking that question. What other, what other perspectives have you heard? Um, so it allows you to say, okay, great, we had a nice discussion about that. Now, what might a feminist perspective say about this? Or how would you read this from a psychoanalytic lens? Uh, it asks them to look for different sorts of things in a text. Um, and there are all <laughs> sorts of places you can go here. You can ask, Um, Or you can teach the feminist lens, the Marxist lens, looking at class and um, those sort of economic factors. You can get into a lot of um, (laughs) mental health issues by talking about psychoanalytic lens, uh, some of that Freudian stuff. And you can laugh about Freud and how wrong he was. And kids love to talk about Freud because he's weird and he talks about sex and, you know, ha ha ha, we can do taboo stuff at school. Um, you can talk about ability and disability through critical disability theory. And those of you who are just looking for a new challenge this year, you can teach critical race theory as a way to read literature, which it is, right? Um,
0: I, I, I was watching the room and then I, I, I watched people scanning the slide and then some of them giggled or gasped when they got to the last
1: one. So, it's scary, but it is a way to read literature. Um, and if you set that up with your class and say, look, we looked at all these other lenses, now let's highlight the voices of color, or let's look at some racial issues in this text. It's um, that's, that's not something we can ignore in literature. All right. So that was a lot of uh, talking at you. I'm going to give you a moment now um, to think about some ways, briefly, that this might show up in your classroom. I know conferences are overwhelming, and if you can come away from each session with one practical thing to do, like next week, I call that a win. Um, So, take a couple minutes here to think, um, and then share with someone near you. What is one place in your curriculum that you think you're doing really well, educating for social justice? Uh, And then what is one piece of content, I listed a bunch of them there at the bottom, uh, or one method you heard in the last... 45 minutes that you think you might want to try. Articles we've liked, uh, just good stuff I've read recently. Um, there's a great article there about critical race theory by someone in the room, Caleb, it's great stuff.
0: Uh, so I uh, want to highlight one other that I didn't mention in the beginning. There's a wonderful little book that was put out by World Renew and the Micah Challenge called Live Justly, and it has four or five very short essays about justice which are probably more accessible for younger students than Nicholas Walton's work is. Um, So that's also on that list. Um, Beautiful publication. So that might be a good place to start any course that is a social justice program.
1: I thought we would just end with the prayer of St. Francis again. I will read it this time, uh, just as a nice end to our time together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Have a great evening.